Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest fox casting either side of the breach. Ever since humanity ventured through the breach and into Malifaux, they have been plagued and tormented by the sinister creatures and nightmarish beings who inhabit this new world. They call these creatures the Neverborn. But there are those who say an even older race of beings inhabited Malifaux long before the Neverborn came into existence. They whisper in hushed tones of the Fae. I hope you enjoy part one of Return of the Queen right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Figurado Cigars. Our cigars are brought through the breach from Cuba for only the highest ranking guild officials. If you want to blow smoke in the face of a subordinate and let them watch you set fire to something that's more valuable than they'll ever be, Figurados are for you. Return of the Queen by Graham Stevenson Silence Indefatigable silence And then deafening grinding White light, sweet air Ancient rusted beams screeched and rumbled Pylons vast and hooked toppled outward Crashing to the ground around the opening pit Like fingers of an upturned hand relaxing in death They shattered the encrusted ice that clung to every surface and threw clouds of snow into the air. The air shimmered, invisible barriers tearing in tandem to the physical. Etheric bonds snapped and a rush of foul air, held back for countless centuries, belched from the pit. It stank of rust and blood. Most of the figures around the pit scattered, but a mesmerized few stood their ground, This would prove to be a mistake. A figure emerged from the pit, floating skyward on the warm subterranean drifts. Long wings filled out and stretched to catch the rising air. They were exquisite, iridescent crimson feathers that shone with supernatural luster, deepening to absolute black on the tips of the primary and secondary feathers, and shaped like those of a sleek raptor. As the steam from the pit cleared, The figure solidified into a female of slender build. Her skin was white as a cave worm and spattered in red gore that had somehow defied congealing during long centuries of captivity. Lank black hair clung to her face, and when she lifted her head, it was revealed that her eyes were gone. Only ragged black sockets remained, issuing blood in slow rivulets. 
The wounds looked freshly inflicted, but the SKP moved her head this way and that to survey her surroundings, clearly unimpeded by their absence. Her face was strong and undeniably beautiful despite her physical injuries, but there were shadows of arrogance and cruelty beneath the pleasing lines of her cheeks and jaw. She alighted on the snowy stones of the pit's lip. If the cold troubled her bare feet, she gave no sign. Something about the way she moved and held herself belied the ragged white robes that hung around her, transcending their shabby appearance and embossing her with a sense of nobility. A spot of ruby blood fell from her cheek and landed in the snow. Almost immediately, a tiny green shoot pushed through the droplet and began to curl skyward, spreading bronze-colored petals. Freedom, she breathed. Her voice was cultured, her accent foreign. It sounded almost archaic. Behind her, other shapes were emerging. A second female, less physically striking, but as pale and dark-haired as the first, emerged from the pit and stood to the right, a pace or so behind. Her robes were heavier, and had withstood the test of time better, though they were far from serviceable. She held a long black staff, decorated with the bones of small creatures, teeth and thorns, and topped by an elongated skull of a carnivore that had long since departed the world. She too was eyeless, and from the crown of her head sprouted long, twisted structures somewhere between tree roots and a stag's antlers. More figures emerged. Strange warriors made of flesh and wood, or sporting armor of cunning design that seemed comprised of vines and bark. They were covered in thorns, and brandished ancient but vicious-looking weapons. Each face that rose from the pit was the same. White flesh, black hair, and ragged holes instead of eyes. Around them the ground erupted. Vines and creepers and flowers pushed through the snow and chunks of shattered ice. Rising in a thick, sweltering carpet around the SKPs, oblivious to the freezing temperature and lack of soil, or even anchorage on the stone beneath. Common sense finally reached the onlookers that had remained, and they began to edge away, but by then it was too late. The winged leader had finally noticed them, and her white brow creased. Vermin, she muttered. I shall bleed them for you, my queen, said the antlered female, reaching for the stone knife on her belt. The blade was so fine and sharp it was almost translucent. Their red sapples strengthen you, Thin though it is. Wait, the queen said, raising a pale hand. I have another use for them. What now, my queen? Ashlyn asked at her shoulder. It had taken scant seconds to replace her most trusted lieutenants. The three had been lost in the final battle, and she would need them for the task ahead. She had selected the three most capable-looking of the peons inhabiting Nythera's shell and transformed them, twisting their flesh, growing and hardening them until her favorites emerged from the pulped red masses. The claw, the thorn, the tooth. It was decreed that they would ever be at her side, and here they stood now, risen once again from the flesh of lesser beings. The claw stood silently, armor formed of dark, twisted wood. In his gnarled hands he held an iron-hard, bladed spear. Spines and thorns coated his outer surface, and the cold of winter billowed from his undead mouth, 
colder even than the frigid air around them. The thorn was shorter and supple as a reed, armoured in the pale greens of spring. Her flesh was ever wrapped in shifting tendrils, moving like a nest of contented serpents. Vines hung from her wrists and forearms, studded with glinting razor barbs that could rip the flesh from a man with a single lash. The toothed stature was somewhere in between, female but more angular with corded muscle across her shoulders and back. Her long hair was the color of her armor, green like grasses growing from the depth of summer. In her hands was the large bladed sword whose cutting edges were keen as a razor, but it quickly softened into a brilliant confusion of vines and leaves. The other peons had gone under Ashlyn's knife. It was likely a grander fate than they deserved to be flayed by the queen's own drew, but she had always considered her generosity to be one of her faults. Walking beyond the spreading border of bright vegetation, beyond the blooms of crimson where Ashlyn had worked her art, Titania crunched into the snow of Nythera and fixed her sightless gaze on the middle distance. She had been buried a long time, and the world above her had changed. As the world opened to her sight, she began to realize how much. Once this land had belonged to her, and had been bursting with life. It had stretched from the boundaries of the city to beyond the scope of the hardiest traveler. Now it was an expanse of desolation, with only isolated pockets of life struggling against the waste and rot. Before, the battle lines had been clearly drawn. Now she sensed many fractal powers interlaced across the land, perpetually at war. And there was a great void. She felt the raw edge of it, the way a blindfolded man feels the lip of a chasm with questing toes. Something very mighty had been thrown down or destroyed, and the world around it still shook from the cataclysm. The fractal powers swarmed around it like rats on a tiger's carcass, their captains locking horns as each vied for supremacy. The city squatted at the very heart of it. Diminished and partly ruined, its light was now no more than a glimmer of its former brilliance. But there was a poisonous hue to that glimmer that suggested that as its health had failed, so had its treachery multiplied. It had once been filled with the bright, vibrant lives of the Fae. Now there were only patches of indeterminate movement, a weak, insignificant form of life, much like the peon she had discovered upon her release. I no longer know this land, she said. It matters not, Ashton said, shaking her antlered head. You shall rule as you did before. There was a time, an ancient time almost forgotten, when Titania would have laughed at this. She would have thrown her hair and reveled in her power and the conviction of her court, in the assurance that she reigned supreme, that she would always reign supreme. She had been a queen then, a true queen, with dominion over all the lands of the Fae, and her subjects had lived in fear and awe of her strength. Her court had been wise and all-knowing, evergreen in its vibrancy. Then had come the rise of the tyrants, the manipulation of the grave spirit, and the endless dark of Nythera. The betrayal was still a keen wound, though she had been granted many centuries to tend it. Her own people had turned against her, poisoned by the lies of the self-appointed wise men of the city. They had bent their knees to science and bureaucracy, and in their arrogance had thought to question the will of their queen. They had undone her, and in the same stroke, themselves.
And where were they now, these wise men? There lay their city, like a stone corpse on the landscape. But what had become of their learning and foresight? Of the fae she sensed very little. There was life of a sort within the city, the vermin. But of her own people there was almost no sign. Isolated pinpricks of sentience here and perhaps there, but the legions of her race were gone to death or distance beyond her ability to see. Her armies were dust, her people ghosts. She felt irreparable loss. Her torment and imprisonment had been at the hands of her people, subverted by the accursed fools who thought they knew better, and there was a deep anger in her for the injustices and torment she had suffered. The wounds inflicted by the grave spirit would never heal, but she still felt an overarching responsibility for the welfare of her race, misguided or otherwise. She was their queen, and without her wisdom and guidance they had lost their way and ultimately perished. Your grace, Ashland prompted. Though the Fae had all but vanished, she was still their sovereign, appointed by ancient order and imbued with the will to lead. She would regather the scattered wreckage of her people, and she would nurture them. In time they would grow again. The Fae were no more than an echo now, but Titania was detecting another, newer form of life. It was concentrated in the hollows, forests, and swamps, many leagues from the city, and its light permeated the veil of this world and shone beyond, as had the Fae's. Most had the bright, impetuous flare of youth, but there were gatherings of older, stronger individuals, and it was from here that the remaining flickers of the Fae also emanated. It seemed that these newer spirits shared kinship of a sort. Perhaps they were descendants of the Fae, her new people, her new subjects. And there was one captain in particular among the struggling powers that drew Titania's attention. His aura was a masked anomaly, with one foot in the affairs of the inhabitants of the city, and the other in the world of the descendants of the Fae. A tightrope that he seemed to walk with great skill. What was most apparent to her was that this masked captain dwelled among the vermin and influenced a great many of them, but he was not one of them. She saw glimmers of a different light beyond his mask. She understood from this captain's spreading tendrils of influence that he was one of the architects of the shattered gulf that had so recently been torn in the land. An endeavor on that scale would have taken cunning and wisdom, and the vermin under his rule smacked of exploited, ignorant labor. Good qualities to have in a subject. What do you see, my queen? Ashlyn asked. There was no irony in her question. Her eye sockets were as raw and bloody as the queen's. I will go to the city, Titania said. There is one there with whom I must speak. There was a long beat while her drew digested this, and phrased her response carefully. I dislike these vermin. They have no loyalty. Two of the ones I bled at Nythera stood behind opposing captains, yet each put his own preservation ahead of the mandate of his commander. And yet I must still find use for their limited service, the queen said. Weak subjects are better than none at all. Titania reached out with fey muscles that had atrophied from centuries without use, and stirred the clouds. They boiled into a threatening purple mass that began to spread across the sky towards the distant city. Shadows pooled in dry creek beds and washed over bald hills, until they reached the distant ruined towers of her hated enemy, 
throwing miles of open badland into an obscuring gloom. Much had changed since Titania's imprisonment, and though her mind and determination had survived the grave, her strength had suffered greatly. She felt the weakness inside her, the parched salt flat where an ocean had once thundered. It would be rash to charge into a potential enemy's camp uninformed and unprepared. The storm would hide her approach and give her much-needed time to appraise the masked captain. She would know soon enough whether he could be used. As the winds rose and distant lightning strove the cumulus, Titania spread her wings. In a single beat she was aloft, rocketing into the glaring sky and leaving her courtiers far below. Away to my return, her voice cooled down, and then with another wing beat, she was a defiant speck speeding against the building storm clouds. A breath, and then she was gone. Lucius watched the ash cylinder gradually crawl the length of the cigar, following the faint grey smoke as it twined like a monochrome creeper up from his leather-padded desk to furl around the highly polished mahogany ceiling fan. He had no interest in smoking it. His refined flavor was lost on him. Yet he enjoyed the minor spectacle of destruction. It was to him a symbol of the inherently transient nature of material things. A craftsman had sweated and agonized over its creation selecting the very finest ingredients and only the most exacting method of manufacture. It had been packaged with care and attention and shipped countless miles to be presented as an article of the finest luxury. And he just set fire to it. Since the death of the governor, the secretary had made it a point to surround himself with the finer things in life. Many of them he took a genuine pleasure from. Supple calfskin boots, the finest silken shirts, even a modest flash of ostentation in his collection of jeweled tie pins and the occasional ring. The consumables, however, had always been difficult to find enthusiasm for. His sustenance did not depend on such base materials, but he understood their importance to men of stature, and they were essential ingredients in the glamour of being wealthy and powerful. It would have been remiss of him not to surround himself with the trappings of success. And so his office held a decanter of the finest brandy available on either side of the breach, and the cigars in his humidor each carried a price tag large enough to cast a shadow over any mid-level guild employee's salary. This particular cigar he was burning was an import from Cuba, and was the last of a box presented by the Governor-General himself. Ashes to ashes, he thought, watching the smoldering nub snuff itself out and collapse into the ceramic ashtray. Outside, the wind scratched at the glass of his balcony door. The weather had taken a suspiciously sharp downturn, and a gathering storm overhead carried a whiff not of ozone, but of something very much more dangerous. He stood at the glass, hands clasped behind his back, and looked out into the darkness. A pale mask looked in. Rain began to tap against the pane distorting his reflection so that his mask seemed to contort and squirm with unreadable expression. He might have wandered then, down the paths of his long memory to a time when duplicity was something he would not have understood, and his face still felt the touch of the sun, had his reflection not changed entirely into something else. The washed-out gold of his mask curdled and turned to fish-belly white, and the faint jade glow of his eyes became empty black holes, that somehow still conveyed ancient fury and purpose. The expressionless face slit became a woman's mouth, 
sensuous at one time, but now malformed by troubled memory. Black hair moved like oil as the face floated closer through the rain, an inch from the glass at most. There was not a single breath from the other side to fog the window. Whatever it was that watched him, it wasn't living. A voice sounded in his head, a low timbre that was barely feminine and strangely accented. The masked captain, it said. And though the apparition's lips did not move, there was no doubt as to the source of the voice. Lucius was not especially alarmed. Far more than a single pane of glass protected him from an exterior assault. There were layers of magical wards between them that only the mightiest could have broken through, and in doing so they would alert every guildsman in the building. Not that Lucius was incapable of defending himself, only that he preferred to task others to take the risk in his stead. It is more usual to contact my assistant for an appointment before appearing in person, he said mildly. With the recent demise of the Governor-General, I am afraid you may find my appointment book rather full. You have surrounded yourself with the effects of these vermin, the visitor continued unabated. You stand among them, are counted as one of them. They heed your counsel. They obey your laws. They bear your yoke. As they should, Lucius said. I serve in the capacity of acting governor-general. These lesser men mark you as their creed, but they do not see beyond the mask, the visitor said, and the blood-rimmed sockets in her face crinkled with sudden shrewdness. They do not see how one they recognize as their own could ever yearn to be free of duplicity. They do not see how he who wears a mask could ever wish for the warmth of the sun on his face. The pithy comment Lucius was preparing about an eyeless woman seeing died in his throat. The peons are blind sheep, the voice in his head said, but not I. Who are you? he whispered. I am Titania, said the woman, her voice rising like a wave inside his skull. I am queen of the Fae. I am the third law. I am keeper of the old world. I am the storm and the withered rose. I am the autumn queen, and I am returned to this world once again. Lucius might have scoffed with incredulity, but the figure seemed to transform as she spoke, gaining height and spreading razor-edged wings the full length of the balcony, and the rain on her tattered garments seemed to shimmer into flowing robes of spectral majesty. The sheer force of her will as she delivered her impassioned monologue buckled the barrier between them, like a canvas tent in a gale. The glass shrieked as it deformed, prevented from shattering by the warding spells, but bent out of shape by the undeniable presence beyond. Impossible, Lucius managed, after taking an involuntary step back. A legend. A myth. Legend and myth were once true, Titania said, waylaid and distorted with time, but true nonetheless. I am returned. There was no denying the conviction. Lucius had never met a queen in his capacity as a guild official, but he knew that she would sound like the voice in his head. It was the voice of a ruler, burdened with the office of law and judgment, tempered with self-sacrifice and abstinence, shadowed by terrible power.
But how? he asked. There will be a time for explanations, Titania said. When she didn't elaborate, he assumed she decided that time had not yet arrived. And what do you want of me? There is a kinship between your kind and mine, she said. You are not fey, but you carry an inner light as we did. And we share many sentiments. Your people also yearn to be free of the vermin, to take back your world and be rid of their menace and tyranny. I seek a moot with the other captains of your kind to declare my return to the world and to strike a banner for my cause. Which is? Annihilation of the tyrants, she said instantly. It is the price of freedom for my people. And if my cause is deemed worthy, perhaps to strike an accord, even an alliance, with your kind against a common foe. The secretary speculated on the situation. If this creature's heritage was genuine, if this really was Titania, how would her reappearance affect the power balance among the Neverborn? A legendary queen from the annals of history had returned to modern-day Malifaux, and a notorious one at that. The specifics of Titania's rule and eventual downfall had been muddied by the passage of centuries, but her name was synonymous with the defeat of the tyrants, a staggering accomplishment, and, of course, with betrayal. Titania was momentarily illuminated, in stark contrast by a lightning flash, and Lucius had a startling instant of staring at a lost, dead soul, a skull-faced relic of a former age, animated yet devoid of life or love, a wraith driven by duty and revenge. He drew back from the glass. Titania sensed his change of heart, and she frowned, her black sockets weeping as blood as the rainwater cascaded down her face. Call your captains, she said. Let them hear my counsel, as I shall hear theirs. I ask only for an opportunity to speak. The path your people follow afterward will be your decision, and yours alone. As you wish, Lucius said. But I do not speak for them. They may not come. For the first time, Titania's hard mouth curled into something like a smile. They will come she said. He knew she was right. Any claimant to Titania's throne would garner a lot of attention from the Neverborn. Only, Lucius suspected it was the sort of attention she might live just long enough to regret. Without another word, the queen vanished with a single huge stroke of her wings, hammering wind and rain against the glass, and leaving Lucius once again staring at his streaky, pale reflection. The resurgence of the Queen of the Fae represented great danger and upset for the Neverborn. The legend suggested she had sacrificed many of her subjects for personal gain, and that her dabbling in dangerous forces had nearly been the death of them all. She was an unpredictable force, a rogue agent. She was also a creature out of her time. Even if her claim to the throne was accepted by the Neverborn, there was little enough left of her queendom to rule over. There was something else she represented besides upheaval, though. Something that would perhaps overpower even the spectre of perfidy. She represented unity. Were the forces of the Neverborn to ally under her flag, they would be united under the most credible leader their people had seen in a long time. Titania's regal presence was undeniable. Her diplomatic prowess remained to be tested, 
but if nothing else she was a seasoned battle commander who had ruled her people without rival for centuries. She might genuinely represent the Neverborn's best chance for freedom from persecution. Lucius stared at the figure in the glass, wondering whether he would still recognize the face behind the mask. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of Return of the Queen.